Chapter 10 of The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. The Mirror of the Sea, Chapter 10 The Faithful River. The estuaries of rivers appeal strongly to an adventurous imagination. This appeal is not always a charm, for there are estuaries of a particularly dispiriting ugliness. Lowlands, mudflats, or perhaps barren sandhills without beauty of form or amenity of aspect, covered with a shabby and scanty vegetation, conveying the impression of poverty and uselessness. Sometimes such an ugliness is merely a repulsive mask. A river whose estuary resembles a breach in a sand rampart may flow through a most fertile country. But all the estuaries of great rivers have their fascination, the attractiveness of an open portal. Water is friendly to man. The ocean, a part of nature furthest removed in the unchangeableness and majesty of its might from the spirit of mankind, has ever been a friend to the enterprising nations of the earth. And of all the elements, this is the one to which men have always been prone to trust themselves, as if its immensity held a reward as vast as itself. From the offing, the open estuary promises every possible fruition to adventurous hopes. That road, open to enterprise and courage, invites the explorer of coasts to new efforts towards the fulfilment of great expectations. The commander of the first Roman galley must have looked with an intense absorption upon the estuary of the Thames as he turned the beak prow of his ship to the westward under the brow of the North Foreland. The estuary of the Thames is not beautiful. It has no noble features, no romantic grandeur of aspect, no smiling geniality. But it is wide open, spacious, inviting, hospitable at the first glance, with a strange air of mysteriousness which lingers about it to this very day. The navigation of his craft must have engrossed all the Romans' attention in the calm of a summer's day, he would choose his weather, when the single row of long sweeps, the galley would be a light one, not a trireme, could fall in easy cadence upon a sheet of water like plate glass, reflecting faithfully the classic form of his vessel and the contour of the lonely shores close to his left hand. I assume he followed the land and passed through what is at present known as Margaret Roads, groping his careful way along the hidden sandbanks, whose every tail and spit has its beacon or buoy nowadays. He must have been anxious, though no doubt he had collected beforehand on the shores of the Gauls a store of information from the talk of traders, adventurers, fishermen, slave-dealers, pirates, all sorts of unofficial men connected with the sea in a more or less reputable way. He would have heard of channels and sandbanks, of natural features of the land useful for sea-marks, of villages and tribes, and modes of barter and precautions to take with the instructive tales about native chiefs dyed more or less blue, whose character for greediness, ferocity or amiability must have been expounded to him with that capacity for vivid language which seems joined naturally to the shadiness of moral character and recklessness of disposition. With that sort of spiced food provided for his anxious thought, watchful for strange men, strange beasts, strange turns of the tide, he would make the best of his way up, a military seaman with a short sword on thigh and a bronze helmet on his head, the pioneer post-captain of an imperial fleet. Was the tribe inhabiting the Isle of Thanet of a ferocious disposition, I wonder, and ready to fall with stone-studded clubs and wooden lances hardened in the fire upon the backs of unwary mariners? 
Amongst the great commercial streams of these islands, the Thames is the only one, I think, open to romantic feeling, from the fact that the sight of human labour and the sounds of human industry do not come down its shores to the very sea, destroying the suggestion of mysterious vastness caused by the configuration of the shore. The broad inlet of the shallow North Sea passes gradually into a contracted shape of the river, but for a long time the feeling of the open water remains with the ship steering to the westward through one of the lighted and buoyed passageways of the Thames, such as Queen's Channel, Prince's Channel, or Fathom Channel, or else coming down the Swin from the north. The rush of the yellow flood tide hurries her up as if into the unknown between the two fading lines of the coast. There are no features to this land, no conspicuous far-famed landmarks for the eye. There is nothing so far down to tell you of the greatest agglomeration of mankind on earth dwelling no more than five and twenty miles away, where the sun sets in a blaze of colour flaming on a gold background, and the dark low shores trend towards each other. And in the great silence, the deep, faint booming of the big guns being tested at Shoebrenus hangs about the Nore, a historical spot in the keeping of one of England's appointed guardians. The Nore sand remains covered at low water and never seen by human eye. But the Nore is a name to capture with visions of historical events, of battles, of fleets, of mutinies, of watch and ward kept upon the great throbbing heart of the state. This ideal point of the estuary, this centre of memories, is marked upon the steely grey expanse of the waters by a lightship painted red that, from a couple of miles off, looks like a cheap and bizarre little toy. I remember how, on coming up the river for the first time, I was surprised at the smallness of that vivid object, a tiny warm speck of crimson lost in an immensity of grey tones. I was startled, as if of necessity the principal beacon in the waterway of the greatest town on earth should have presented imposing proportions, and behold the brown spritsail of a barge hid it entirely from my view. Coming in from the eastward, the bright colouring of the lightship marking the part of the river committed to the charge of an admiral, the commander-in-chief of the Nore, accentuates the dreariness and the great breadth of the Thames estuary. But soon the course of the ship opens the entrance of the Medway, with its men of war moored in line, and the long wooden jetty of Port Victoria, with its few low buildings like the beginning of a hasty settlement upon a wild and unexplored shore. The famous Thames barges sit in brown clusters upon the water, with an effect of birds floating upon a pond. On the imposing expanse of the great estuary, the traffic of the port, where so much of the world's work and the world's thinking is being done, becomes insignificant, scattered, streaming away in thin lines of ships, stringing themselves out into the eastern quarter through the various navigable channels of which the Nor lightship marks the divergence. The coasting traffic inclines to the north. The deep-water ships steer east with a southern inclination, on through the downs to the most remote ends of the world. In the widening of the shores, sinking low in the grey smoky distances, the greatness of the sea receives the mercantile fleet of good ships that London sends out upon the turn of every tide. They follow each other, going very close by the Essex shore. Such as the beads of a rosary told by business-like shipowners for the greater profit of the world, they slip one by one into the open while in the offing the inward-bound ships come up singly and in bunches from under the sea horizon, closing the mouth of the river between Orfordness and North Foreland. 
They all converge upon the gnaw, the warm speck of red upon the tones of drab and grey, with the distant shores running together towards the west, low and flat, like the sides of an enormous canal. The sea reach of the Thames is straight, and once Sheerness is left behind, its bank seems very uninhabited, except for the cluster of houses which is south end, or here and there a lonely wooden jetty where petroleum ships discharge their dangerous cargoes, and the oil storage tanks, low and round with slightly domed roofs, peep over the edge of the foreshore, as it were a village of Central African huts imitated in iron. Bordered by the black and shining mudflats, the level marsh extends for miles. Away in the far background the land rises, closing the view with a continuous wooded slope, forming in the distance an interminable rampart overgrown with bushes. Then, on the slight turn of the Lower Hope Reach, clusters of factory chimneys come distinctly into view, tall and slender above the squat ranges of cement works in greys and greenhithe. Smoking quietly at the top against the great blaze of a magnificent sunset, they give an industrial character to the scene, speak of work, manufactures and trade, as palm groves on the coral strands of distant islands speak of the luxuriant grace, beauty and vigour of tropical nature. The houses of Gravesend crowd upon the shore with an effect of confusion, as if they had tumbled down haphazard from the top of the hill at the back. The flatness of the Kentish shore ends there. A fleet of steam tugs lies at anchor in front of the various piers. A conspicuous church spire, the first seen distinctly coming from the sea, has a thoughtful grace, the serenity of a fine form above the chaotic disorder of men's houses. But on the other side, on the flat Essex side, a shapeless and desolate red edifice, a vast pile of bricks with many windows and a slate roof more inaccessible than an alpine slope, towers over the bend in monstrous ugliness, the tallest, heaviest building for miles around, a thing like an hotel, like a mansion of flats, all to let, exiled into these fields out of a street in West Kensington. Just round the corner, as it were, on a pier defined with stone blocks and wooden piles, a white mast, slender like a stalk of straw and crossed by a yard like a knitting needle, flying the signals of flag and balloon, watches over a set of heavy dock gates. Mastheads and funnel tops of ships peep above the ranges of corrugated iron roofs. This is the entrance to Tilbury Dock, the most recent of all London docks, the nearest to the sea. Between the crowded houses of Gravesend and the monstrous red brick pile on the Essex shore, the ship is surrendered fairly to the grasp of the river. That hint of loneliness, that soul of the sea which had accompanied her as far as the lower Hope Reach, abandons her at the turn of the first bend above. The salt, acrid flavour has gone out of the air, together with a sense of unlimited space opening free beyond the threshold of sandbanks below the gnaw. The waters of the sea rush on past Gravesend, tumbling the big mooring buoys laid along the face of the town. But the sea freedom stops short there, surrendering the salt tide to the needs, the artifices, the contrivances of toiling men. Wharves, landing places, dock gates, waterside stairs follow each other continuously right up to London Bridge, and the hum of men's work fills the river with a menacing, muttering note as of a breathless, ever-driving gale. 
The waterway, so fair above and wide below, flows oppressed by bricks and mortar and stone, by blackened timber and grimed glass and rusty iron, covered with black barges, whipped up by paddles and screws, overburdened with craft, overhung with chains, overshadowed by walls making a steep gorge for its bed, filled with a haze of smoke and dust. This stretch of the Thames from London Bridge to the Albert Docks is, to other watersides of river ports, what a virgin forest would be to a garden. It is a thing grown up, not made. It recalls a jungle by the confused, varied and impenetrable aspect of the buildings that line the shore, not according to a planned purpose, but as if sprung up by accident from scattered seeds. Like the matted growth of bushes and creepers veiling the silent depths of an unexplored wilderness, they hide the depths of London's infinitely varied, vigorous, seething life. In other river ports it is not so. They lie open to their stream, with quays like broad clearings, with streets like avenues cut through thick timber for the convenience of trade. I am thinking now of river ports I have seen, of Antwerp, for instance, of Nantes or Bordeaux, or even old Rouen, where the night watchmen of ships, elbows on rail, gaze at shop windows and brilliant cafes, and see the audience go in and come out of the opera house. But London, the oldest and greatest of river ports, does not possess as much as a hundred yards of open quays upon its river front. Dark and impenetrable at night, like the face of a forest, is the London waterside. It is the waterside of watersides, where only one aspect of the world's life can be seen, and only one kind of men toils on the edge of the stream. The lightless walls seem to spring from the very mud upon which stranded barges lie, and the narrow lanes coming down to the foreshore resemble the paths of smashed bushes and crumbled earth, where big game come to drink on the banks of tropical streams. Behind the growth of the London waterside, the docks of London spread out unsuspected, smooth and placid, lost amongst the buildings like dark lagoons hidden in a thick forest. They lie concealed in the intricate growth of houses, with a few stalks of mastheads here and there overtopping the roof of some four-storey warehouse. It is a strange conjunction, this, of roofs and mastheads, of walls and yard-arms. I remember once having the incongruity of the relation brought home to me in a practical way. I was the chief officer of a fine ship, just docked with a cargo of wool from Sydney after a ninety days' passage. In fact, we had not been in more than half an hour, and I was still busy making her fast to the stone post of a very narrow quay in front of a lofty warehouse. An old man with a grey whisker under the chin and brass buttons on his pilot-cloth jacket hurried up along the quay, hailing my ship by name. He was one of those officials called birthing masters, not the one who had birthed us, but another who, apparently, had been busy securing a steamer at the other end of the dock. I could see from afar his hard blue eyes staring at us, as if fascinated, with a queer sort of absorption. I wondered what that worthy sea-dog had found to criticise in my ship's rigging. And I, too, glanced aloft anxiously. I could see nothing wrong there. But perhaps that superannuated fellow craftsman was simply admiring the ship's perfect order aloft, I thought, with some secret pride, for the chief officer is responsible for his ship's appearance, and as to her outward condition, he is the man open to praise or blame. Meantime, the old salt, ex-coasting skipper, was writ large all over his person, 
had hobbled up alongside in his bumpy, shiny boots, and, waving an arm short and thick like the flipper of a seal terminated by a paw red as an uncooked beefsteak, addressed the poop in a muffled, faint, roaring voice as if a sample of every North Sea fog of his life had been permanently lodged in his throat. "'All around, Mr. Mate!' were his words. "'If you don't look sharp, you'll have your top gallant yards through the windows of that air warehouse presently.' This was the only cause of his interest in the ship's beautiful spars. I own that, for a time, I was struck dumb by the bizarre associations of yard-arms and window-panes. To break windows is the last thing one would think of in connection with a ship's top-gallant-yard, unless, indeed, one were an experienced berthing-master in one of the London docks. This old chap was doing his little share of the world's work with proper efficiency. His little blue eyes had made out the danger many hundred yards off. His rheumatic feet, tired with balancing that squat body for many years upon the decks of small coasters, and made sore by miles of tramping upon the flagstones of the dockside, had hurried up in time to avert a ridiculous catastrophe. I answered him pettishly, I fear, and as if I had known all about it before. All right, all right, can't do everything at once. He remained nearby, muttering to himself till the yards had been hauled round at my order, and then raised again his foggy, thick voice. "'None too soon,' he observed with a critical glance up at the towering side of the warehouse. "'That's half a sovereign in your pocket, Mr. Mate. "'You should always look first how you are with them windows "'before you begin to breast in your ship to the quay.' "'It was good advice, but one cannot think of everything "'or foresee contacts of things apparently as remote as stars and hop-poles.' The view of ships lying moored in some of the older docks of London has always suggested to my mind the image of a flock of swans kept in the flooded backyard of grim tenement houses. The flatness of the walls surrounding the dark pool on which they float brings out wonderfully the flowing grace of the lines on which a ship's hull is built. The lightness of these forms, devised to meet the winds and the seas, makes, by contrast with the great piles of bricks, the chains and cables of their moorings appear very necessary, as if nothing less could prevent them from soaring upwards and over the roofs. The least puff of wind stealing round the corners of the dock buildings stirs these captives fettered to rigid shores. It is as if the soul of a ship were impatient of confinement. Those mastered hulls, relieved of their cargo, become restless at the slightest hint of the wind's freedom. However tightly moored, they range a little at their berths, swaying imperceptibly the spire-like assemblages of cordage and spars. You can detect their impatience by watching the sway of the mastheads against the motionless, the soulless gravity of mortar and stones. As you pass alongside each hopeless prisoner chained to the quay, the slight grinding noise of the wooden fenders makes the sound of angry muttering. But, after all, it may be good for ships to go through a period of restraint and repose, as the restraint and self-communion of inactivity may be good for an unruly soul, not indeed that I mean to say that ships are unruly. On the contrary, they are faithful creatures, as so many men can testify. And faithfulness is a great restraint, the strongest bond laid upon the self-will of men and ships on this globe of land and sea. This interval of bondage in the docks rounds each period of a ship's life with a sense of accomplished duty, of an effectively played part in the work of the world. The dock is the scene of what the world would think the most serious part in the light, bounding, swaying life of a ship. But there are docks and docks. 
The ugliness of some docks is appalling. Wild horses would not drag from me the name of a certain river in the north whose narrow estuary is inhospitable and dangerous, and whose docks are like a nightmare of dreariness and misery. Their dismal shores are studded thickly with scaffold-like, enormous timber structures, whose lofty heads are veiled periodically by an infernal gritty night of a cloud of coal dust. The most important ingredient for getting the world's work along is distributed there under the circumstances of the greatest cruelty meted out to helpless ships. Shut up in the desolate circuit of these basins, you would think a free ship would droop and die like a wild bird put into a dirty cage. But a ship, perhaps because of her faithfulness to men, will endure an extraordinary lot of ill usage. Still, I have seen ships issue from certain docks like half-dead prisoners from a dungeon, bedraggled, overcome, wholly disguised in dirt, and with their men rolling white eyeballs in black and worried faces, raised to a heaven which, in its smoky and soiled aspect, seemed to reflect the sordidness of the earth below. One thing, however, may be said for the docks of the Port of London on both sides of the river, for all the complaint of their insufficient equipment, of their obsolete rules, of failure, they say, in the matter of quick dispatch, no ship need ever issue from their gates in a half-fainting condition. London is a general cargo port, as is only proper for the greatest capital of the world to be. General cargo ports belong to the aristocracy of the earth's trading places and in that aristocracy London, as it is its way, has a unique physiognomy. The absence of picturesqueness cannot be laid to the charge of the docks opening into the Thames. For all my unkind comparisons to swans and backyards, it cannot be denied that each dock or group of docks along the north side of the river has its own individual attractiveness. Beginning with the cosy little St Catherine's dock, lying overshadowed and black like a quiet pool amongst rocky crags, through the venerable and sympathetic London docks, with not a single line of rails in the whole of their area, and the aroma of spices lingering between its warehouses with their far-famed wine cellars, down through the interesting group of West India docks, the fine docks at Blackwall, on past the galleon's reach entrance of the Victoria and Albert docks, right down to the vast gloom of the great basin in Tilbury. Each of those places of restraint for ships has its own peculiar physiognomy, its own expression. And what makes them unique and attractive is their common tray of being romantic in their usefulness. In their way, they are as romantic as the river they serve is unlike all the other commercial streams of the world. The cosiness of the St Catherine's Dock, the old world air of the London Docks, remain impressed upon the memory. The docks down the river, abreast of Woolwich, are imposing by their proportions and the vast scale of the ugliness that forms their surroundings, ugliness so picturesque as to become a delight to the eye. When one talks of the Thames docks, beauty is a vain word, but romance has lived too long upon this river not to have thrown a mantle of glamour upon its banks. The antiquity of the port appeals to the imagination by the long chain of adventurous enterprises that had their inception in the town and floated out into the world on the waters of the river. Even the newest of the docks, the Tilbury docks, shares in the glamour conferred by historical associations. Queen Elizabeth has made one of her progresses down here, not one of her journeys of pomp and ceremony, but an anxious business progress at a time of national history. The menace of that time has passed away, and now Tilbury is known by its docks. These are very modern, 
but their remoteness and isolation upon the Essex marsh, the days of failure attending their creation, invested them with a romantic air. Nothing in those days could have been more striking than the vast empty basins, surrounded by miles of bare keys and the ranges of cargo sheds, where two or three ships seemed lost like bewitched children in a forest of gaunt hydraulic cranes. One received a wonderful impression of utter abandonment, of wasted efficiency. From the first the Tilbury docks were very efficient and ready for their task, but they had come perhaps too soon into the field. A great future lies before Tilbury docks. They shall never fill a long-felt want, in the sacramental phrase that is applied to railways, tunnels, newspapers and new editions of books. They were too early in the field. The want shall never be felt, because, free of the trammels of the tide, easy of access, magnificent and desolate, they are already there, prepared to take and keep the biggest ships that float upon the sea. They are worthy of the oldest river port in the world. And, truth to say, for all the criticisms flung upon the heads of the dock companies, the other docks of the Thames are no disgrace to the town, with a population greater than that of some commonwealths. The growth of London as a well-equipped port has been slow, while not unworthy of a great capital, of a great centre of distribution. It must not be forgotten that London has not the backing of great industrial districts or great fields of natural exploitation. In this it differs from Liverpool, from Cardiff, from Newcastle, from Glasgow, and therein the Thames differs from the Mersey, from the Tyne, from the Clyde. It is an historical river. It is a romantic stream flowing through the centre of great affairs, and for all the criticism of the river's administration, my contention is that its development has been worthy of its dignity. For a long time the stream itself could accommodate quite easily the oversea and coasting traffic. That was in the days when, in the part called the Pool, just below London Bridge, the vessels moored, stem and stern, in the very strength of the tide, formed one solid mass like an island covered with a forest of gaunt, leafless trees. And when the trade had grown too big for the river, there came the St Catherine's docks and the London docks, magnificent undertakings answering to the need of their time. The same may be said of the other artificial lakes full of ships that go in and out upon this high road to all parts of the world. The labour of the imperial waterway goes on from generation to generation, goes on day and night. Nothing ever arrests its sleepless industry but the coming of a heavy fog which clothes the teeming stream in a mantle of impenetrable stillness. After the gradual cessation of all sound and movement on the faithful river, only the ringing of ship's bells is heard mysterious and muffled in the white vapour from London Bridge right down to the Nore, for miles and miles in a decrescendo tinkling to where the estuary broadens out into the North Sea and the anchored ships lie scattered thinly in the shrouded channels between the sandbanks of the Thames' mouth. Through the long and glorious tale of years of the river's strenuous service to its people, these are its only breathing times. End of chapter 10